1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to begin the Bible reading in verse number 1. First Kings 19 and verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Rise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him, and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, 
return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shephath of Abel Melech, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Amen. Well, in the Bible reading there at the end of verse 18, a familiar passage, a familiar story and episode in the life of the prophet Elijah. But let's seek the Lord in prayer uh, as we come to these verses here. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that tonight you'll help us. We pray that you'll speak to us from your word. We pray that you'll help us in all of our discouragements and uh, the hard times that we face to know that what we sang this evening is true. I will not forget thee. You've told us in the scriptures, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And we thank you that you don't forget about your people. You know exactly where they are. You know exactly their needs. And so we pray that you'll come and help us tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is very interesting often how the Lord will fit the hymns and the message together. Nobody had any idea what I was preaching on. But several of the hymns this evening fit very well with the theme that we will be looking at from 1 Kings chapter 19, that hymn we sang of the Lord not forgetting us fits very nicely. Be gone unbelief fits very nicely with what we'll be looking at this evening. The law of gravity tells us that what goes up must come down. We are all very well aware of the nature of things rising and falling. Some things, like the tides of the ocean, can be predicted down to the very minute. The rising and setting of the sun, you can pull your phone out right now and go to your weather app and you can see exactly what time is sunset today and you can find out exactly to the very minute what time sunrise will be in the morning. We can predict the rising and falling of many things. But I guess we all wish that we could predict our circumstances like we can predict the rising of the tides or like we could predict a sunrise or a sunset. But you all know it simply is not the case. I think it would be very helpful, would it not, if we could predict our circumstances, or if we could predict, maybe even closer to home, our emotions the same way. But we can't do it. One thing that we all have experienced is the rising and the falling of faith. There have been times in your life that you've been walking with the Lord in such a way that you believed if I prayed right now for that mountain to be removed, God would move it. 
And there are other times that you think to yourself, what in the world is the point of praying? This is a worthless, pointless exercise. And we live in those two extremes. We, we live with that conflict of faith that is the universal struggle, seemingly, of the Christian heart. I don't think Paul was immune to it. I don't think Abraham was immune to it. I don't think Moses was immune to it. And I know for sure from this passage that Elijah was not immune to it. You don't get worried when your faith is strong. That's what it's supposed to be. But it's the faltering faith. It's the weakness of faith that causes so much concern. We've all experienced it, but what to do with it and how to overcome it. And so I want to preach to you this evening on this subject of dealing with a faltering faith. Now, if you're taking notes, you could put all sorts of things there with faltering faith. You could put the word discouragements, dealing with discouragements. You could put the word depression, dealing with depression. You could put the word anxiety. You could put really a whole long list of what we would put in the category of negative emotions. How do you deal with these things? And so that's what I want to speak to you about this evening. I want to begin by looking at the cause of these things. I'm going to more or less consistently use the phrase faltering faith, regardless of what you have in your notes. Perhaps the Lord would have you put a word more pertinent to your own heart in the notes that you write down on your own paper. But faltering faith is the phrase that I'll be using. The greatest of the Lord's servants have had their battles with these kinds of troubles. You take Abraham... Abraham was a man of great faith. The Lord called him out of idolatry. He said, come follow me. I'm going to take you to this land. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And God made a promise that Abraham was going to have a child. And Abraham waited. And there was no child. And he waited more and there was still no child. And finally he said, I must have misunderstood And so he took matters into his own hands and he produced an offspring through Hagar. And your newspaper tells us of the consequences of that to this very day. All of the troubles in the Middle East go back to Ishmael and Isaac. But Abraham was a man who faltered in faith and in a moment of weak faith sinned greatly. Moses was a man of great faith. He led the entire nation of Israel into the wilderness. But there in that wilderness, in the weakness of his faith, there was one point that he was so distressed with the rebellion and the turmoil that was going on among the Israelites that he asked the Lord to take his life. Lord, I can't handle this anymore. Just... Take me. Take me now. You read in the Psalms of David crying out to the Lord in times of great weakness. 
You find Asaph saying that his feet were almost gone, his steps had well nigh slipped. He confessed a time of weakness of his faith. The whole group of disciples after the crucifixion fled. And one of them to this very day is referred to as doubting Thomas. If you take a moment to examine your own heart, you'll find that you're really no different than Abraham. You're no different than Moses. You're no different than David. You're no different than Asap. You're no different than the disciples. You're no different than any of them. It's a, it's a problem. It's a plague universal to the Christian heart. It doesn't matter if you've been saved a year or 30 years or longer. We have these moments, moments of discouragements. You pray for a loved one. You pray for an unsafe child. You pray for an unsafe friend, an unsaved relative for years, for years and years and nothing. You've tried to serve the Lord. You, you listen to a message like what I preached this morning of the ministry of Christ and, and emulating and mimicking the ministry of Christ and praying more and evangelizing and serving the Lord, etc. And you, you want to do all of those things and you're discouraged because you've tried to do all those things and the results seem non-existent. It seems as if you've, you know, the, the old thing, two steps forward or three steps forward, two steps back. You, you just get the two steps back part and never get the three steps forward part, it seems like. I get it and I understand in this passage, we see a few of the main causes, a few things that we can point to as to why we find ourselves in these circumstances so often. The first one that I'll put to you is simply the fear of man. Now, I say it that way because that's the phrase we use, the fear of man. But in this particular unique instance, it was the fear of woman because it was Elijah scared to death of Jezebel. I think you know the context. You can look at the headings in your Bible and clue yourself into a little bit of what's going on here. But if you go back to chapter 18, it's the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And you know that story. You know that there were these 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves, 850 false prophets against one man, against Elijah. And the, the challenge was that the God that answers by fire is the true God. Simple enough. Pretty straightforward. And so Elijah summons these false prophets to Mount Carmel and is going to prove once and for all that Jehovah is the true God. And these false prophets are no gods at all. And so Elijah called for two bullocks to be brought, one for him, one for the false prophets. And the God that answered by fire and consumed the sacrifice was indeed the true God. And so for the prophets of Baal, they went first. And you know the story. They danced around. They cried out. They even cut themselves with stones. They got some of them themselves on top of the altar dancing around, calling upon their false god to send fire. And this went on for hours. 
nothing happened. And so now it's Elijah's turn. And so Elijah says, I want somebody to come over here and dig a trench all the way around this altar. And so guys came and they started digging. And he said, I want you to bring some water. I want you to pour water. Just pour the whole thing. Pour water onto the altar. Let it run down until it fills the trench completely full. And so they did. They did all, all that Elijah said. And then Elijah, no dancing around, no, no crying, nothing crazy. He prays a prayer that, if you count the Hebrew words, is 33 words long. And immediately, fire fell from heaven and consumed that sacrifice. Burned up not only the bullock, burned up all the wood, even burned up the stones of the altar. Burned the whole thing up. God answered by fire. And you read that story and it's a tremendous victory. And Elijah is like literally on top of the mountain. He had won. The odds from a human perspective were unbelievable, 850 to 1. And Elijah and Elijah's God won. And after the fire falls, Elijah commences to slay all 850 of those false prophets. As Steve Lawson likes to say, they don't make preachers like they used to. Can you imagine? I mean, but seriously, can you imagine? He, he literally took a sword and cut those 850 people in pieces. The just judgment of a holy God. But he did it. And Elijah is now the prophet of God with this great victory of what he had done. And then we come to chapter 19. We learn in chapter 18 that those 400 prophets of the groves were people that ate at Jezebel's table. They were on Jezebel's payroll. They were prophets of Jezebel's goddess named Ashtaroth. And we read in chapter 19 verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had just done. And so Ahab tells this whole story of what had just happened on top of that mountain. And Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah with this message. Within 24 hours, I'm going to kill you. That, that was the message. That's, that's what verse 2 is. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Jezebel's message to Elijah was, you got 24 hours, I'm going to kill you. And so you wonder how could Elijah so quickly forget what God had just done? It's not like God had done this years ago. This was the next day. And now we find Elijah bold before 850 of these false prophets, slaying them down by the river, only now at a word from Jezebel's messenger, he's running for his life. And we know he's running for his life because that's what it says in verse number 3. 
And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah. Left his servant there, and he went another day's journey farther into the wilderness. In essence, he was getting as far away from this woman as he could get, running for his life. Elijah was God's prophet. And what could, what could Jezebel do to him? What could Jezebel do to him that these 850 false prophets couldn't have done to him? Or for that matter, the 850 false prophets were there as the false prophets, but they had people on their team there watching the whole thing. Somebody dug that trench. Somebody poured that water. There were other people there that were not on Elijah's side. What could Jezebel do? But notice verse 3. Again, it's one of these little things that you just read past and you might not catch, but it says that when he saw that, well, this messenger didn't show him anything. I understand it's narrative and I understand that's the way we talk, but just focus on that word. Elijah's messenger didn't show him anything. It doesn't say when he heard that. But you see, fundamentally, the fear of man happens when you take, off, take your eyes off the Lord and put them on your circumstances. That's when the fear of man sets in. You focus on circumstances and you'll always end up with weak faith. There's no doubt that your circumstances are bigger than you are. My circumstances are bigger than I am. My problems are bigger than me. Your problems are bigger than you. But when we get our eyes on those rather than the Lord, we begin to fear what man can do unto us rather than truly fear the Lord, then your faith will falter. It will. But there's another cause, and that is disappointment, discouragement or disappointment. As a prophet, Elijah wanted to see the people repent and turn to the Lord. That's where Elijah's heart was. We, we read all the way through, you know, past this. Um, and, and when the Lord says to Elijah, what doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah pours out, pours out his heart to the Lord. Verse 10, you see. I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. He had just seen a great miracle done. And the whole burden of his heart in this miracle, in this the Lord calling and, and answering by fire, and the false prophets slain, in Elijah's mind what was going to happen was this was going to be the thing that brought a national revival. Everybody in Israel would see that God had answered with fire and these false gods that so many of the Israelites had adopted to worship. These false gods are nothing. And people just in masses are going to turn to the Lord. Only it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And so Elijah running for his life... He goes out into this wilderness and we find this juniper tree he's sitting under. And he says in verse 4, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, the Apostle Paul, 
You know, we have to understand here, what is Elijah saying? What, what is he communicating here? The Apostle Paul at one point acknowledged that it would be good for him to die. Paul said, for me to die is gain. He knew that. And Paul even tells us that he longed to be with the Lord because that was far better. But yet what Paul was expressing in that sentiment is really very different than what Elijah is expressing in his. Elijah's is not for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Elijah's sentiment in his disappointment was, what's the use? What's the use? I'm worthless. I'm no better than my father's. My fathers have sinned. Fathers before them sinned. The whole nation's in sin. The Lord's called me to draw these people away from sin and to the Lord. I've done everything I know to do. And this is pointless. This is useless. What's the point? May as well die. He viewed himself as a complete and utter failure as a prophet. Even after such a great miracle, this is the thing. It's like you scratch your head and, Elijah, how could you get here so fast? But even after this great miracle, the next day he's in the slough, well, two days later now, he's in the slough of despond, saying to the Lord, Lord, what's the use? I'm a worthless prophet. I'm no good for nothing. Just kill me. Take my life. You know, this is as I've, I've tried to describe a universal plague of the human heart. I hope, I don't know your heart, but I don't know if you've ever seriously contemplated suicide. Like really given that serious, serious thought that I am so worthless, I don't even belong here. That's a low place. I think it's more common than we would want to acknowledge, even in the church. It's one of those kind of taboo subjects that you don't talk about because you know you're not supposed to think that way. And so you would never cry out for help. You wouldn't talk to anybody about it. But you should. You know, this is something, I don't know how many preachers are suicidal, but this is something that's a problem for preachers. You pour yourself into a sermon, you, you, you preach, and as you're shaking hands with people out the door, they're doing the thing that you just preach not to do. You're like, what? Y'all people don't listen? This happens all the time. It happens in parenting, right? We pour ourselves into our children, and we try to discipline them. We, we try to, to speak to them forthrightly. We try to give them correction. Only five minutes later, they're right back doing the thing. It's like, do you not listen to anything? Are you that? Are you? I think I'm not the only parent that's ever said this out loud. Are you that stupid? Do you not listen to anything? And it's discouraging. 
Relationships can have their disappointments. Things don't go the way you anticipate. They don't, they don't happen and turn out the way you, you hope them to. We have all sorts of, of these kinds of things. You know, there's, we, don't, we don't really do this in this church so much. We don't really entertain the unspoken prayer request. That's a thing, but that's not something that is said often in our prayer meetings. But there are those unspoken prayer requests. There are those burdens that are so deep and, and so hurtful and so trying that some personalities don't ever open up about them at all. Don't ever say anything about them at all. Bottle it all, bottle it all up inside until it's like a pressure valve that bursts. And, and you wonder, where did, that, where did that come from? But it's all been in there for years smoldering and festering until finally it explodes. This was something of Elijah's disappointment, his discouragement, as he sits there thinking himself to be worthless and useless. But yet we'll see later God has other plans for him. But disappointments like these can cause weakness and and faltering of faith. I don't want to grind the gears here on the, the clutch of the sermon, but um, a little bit of a grinding of gears and go to a third point, a, th- a third reason why faith can falter, and that is pride. And it seems like this is like the opposite of what you're just talking about. It's really just the same thing. You know, what is the thinking that you're useless, but really a, a weird form of, of self-pride, of inordinate self-worth, that it all hinges on me. It, it, all, it all involves me. That really is just pride. Right? The, the, we talk about low self-esteem. Well, low self-esteem often is really just a manifestation of pride. It, it's just referred to in a different way, but it really is just pride. We see in chapter 17 and 18... I haven't talked about chapter 17 much, but 17 and 18, we see Elijah and his language is very theocentric. He's very much focused on the Lord. But you come to chapter 19 and his language is not theocentric at all. You find in chapter 19 his language is very self-centered. You see a lot of personal pronouns. You see a lot of I and me and my. For example, you come to verses 9 and 10 when the Lord says, What doest thou here, Elijah? You know, Look at all this I've done. I've been jealous for the Lord. I've been fighting the good fight. You know, I am the one that was standing up, standing up for Jesus. He was doing all that that he was supposed to be doing. And the children of Israel, they've forsaken you. And Lord, I'm zealous for your name. And they've all, for, I'm the only one that's not forsaken the Lord. I'm this lone ranger. That I'm the only one doing right. And so Elijah believed he was the only righteous man on earth. Everybody else had forsaken the Lord. But yet the Lord tells him down in verse number 18 that, well, Elijah, what you actually don't know is... 
as a whole 7,000. And I don't necessarily here take the 7,000 as a countable number. I take it more as a, a metaphorical number. I'm not going to be dogmatic. Maybe there were exactly to the man 7,000. But there were a whole bunch that had not bowed the knee to Baal. And what the Lord is telling Elijah is that he is far, far from being alone in this fight for truth and and righteousness. You know, this is something that we often fall in as conservative, Bible-believing people. And, you know, even this morning in my message this morning, you know, there's an aspect of throwing rocks at bad churches and, you know, the drum set and the glass pulpit and the portable and all that. And, you know, there, there's a, a context of, of preaching against those things and, and talking about those things for our understanding. But we have to be careful to, to fall into this wrong thinking that every other church is bad. We're the only church faithful. We're the only place standing for truth. Well, if you think that, you're, you're just you're wrong. You're, you're just dead wrong. There are, there are many faithful churches and congregations out there that are standing for the Lord. We're not alone in this fight for truth. It feels like we are sometimes, but we're not. But when we begin to believe that we have this corner on truth, when we have this sectarian, pharisaical pride that sets in, and we see everything around us going so badly, It's easy to be very discouraged and have your faith to falter. And so Elijah's here in a very low time. And in this situation, we can't really look at Elijah with admiration, but we can look at him with understanding. We can't admire him, but Elijah, I feel what you're going through. Been there. You know, as I heard somebody say, I've been riding that horse for years. That's an that's a experience that I'm familiar with. I, you can relate to Elijah and the discouragements and the disappointments. But we come to the cure. What is the cure for this faltering faith? And the cure, first of all, is a meeting with the Lord. And that's what happens there in this juniper tree. And this is the thing. This wasn't Elijah going to this juniper tree to get away like Christ did that we read about this morning where he went to this solitary place to pray. Elijah wasn't trying to get a day's journey into the wilderness to find a quiet place to seek the Lord. He was trying to find a quiet place to die. But instead, the Lord came to him. The Lord came and met with him and brought him a message that was, in essence, Elijah, I'm not finished with you, you're not done. There's still work for you to do. We read in verse 7 that it is the angel of the Lord came again the second time. I think you already know that title, the angel of the Lord, is a special designation for a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ in the Old Testament. So this was Christ himself. This was the Lord coming to Elijah. had already come and told him, rise and eat in verse 5. And he saw this cake. It was baked. The Lord had provided this for him, this, this food and this drink. And so he ate that, and then he laid down again, and the Lord the second time touched him, woke him, woke him up, and 
said, Elijah, you've got to eat. You've got a journey in front of you that's too great for you. Well, Elijah at this point thought standing up was too great for him, much less a journey. And here it was, the Lord had something for him to do. And the Lord came and met with Elijah and communicated to him in such a way for him to understand that he wasn't alone. And so the first cure for this faltering faith is a meeting with the Lord. But it's also a word from the Lord. That's the other part, a word from the Lord. And I'm not trying to present those things as if they're opposing things. And I also don't want to insinuate that you can have one without the other. This is two sides of the same coin. These things go hand in hand. And you turn over to verse 9. There came, he, he came to this cave and he lodged there. And the word of the Lord came to him. And the Lord came with this question, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives this, you know, initially this prideful answer that we've looked at in verse number 10. But in verse 11, he tells him to go stand at the, the mouth of that cave, the opening of that cave. And the Lord comes and shakes the, the whole mountain with this powerful wind. What we read here in this passage, the Lord wasn't in that. And then this earthquake, you know, the the earth is moving under his feet. And the Lord wasn't in that. And then this great fire, the Lord wasn't there. And it it was just that still, small voice that the Lord was in. The Lord communicated with Elijah in his spirit this still, small voice. And and that was the word of the Lord to Elijah to encourage him of what was next. You know, we often expect the Lord to work according to our planned or our preconceived ideas. Because what what we have going on here, if you, you go back to just a couple days previous when he's on top of this mountain, these false prophets, what were they looking for? They were looking for a great show. They were dancing around and screaming and hollering and cutting themselves and doing all this. And, you know, their God was going to answer with fire, only he didn't do it. And then Elijah just very simply prays and the Lord consumes the whole thing in a moment. And it was a powerful show for everybody to see. Sometimes God works that way. But more often than not, he doesn't. I think one of the mistakes that we fall into is, you know, we get in these discouraging things or whatever, and we're waiting for the Lord to come do some big, great thing. We're we're waiting for the big show. And this is where too many Christians get caught up in, in a wrong mindset, similar to what I was talking about this morning, because you can go from church to church to church, even in this very city, where the leadership of that church, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, is trying to recreate the big show. They're they're trying to put on the the God is big performance for everybody to see. And it draws a crowd. There's no doubt. It draws a crowd. Look at the parking lot. It draws a crowd. 
But ordinarily, God does not work that way. Ordinarily, we see in Scripture God working through the, don't take this word the wrong way, but the mundane and methodical means of grace. Just the regular, ordinary, systematic, and methodical preaching of the word. Spending time in prayer. Fellowshipping with the Lord's people. Just the the methodical, still, small voice of what it is to be a Christian. And that's how the Lord works. That's how the Lord operates so often. And the the word of the Lord came to Elijah in such a way that says, Elijah, I've still got a, a great work for you to do. I want you to go anoint this guy and this guy and then go and anoint this guy and do all this and give this message. And by the way, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not in this all by yourself. There's a whole 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. They've, they've not kissed him. They've not submitted to him. They're, they're still for me. They're still faithful to me. You know, for Elijah, that was the word he needed to hear. And that was the word of encouragement for him. You, know, you, you might need a word of encouragement yourself, maybe not the same thing as Elijah heard, but you might need a word from the Lord that Christ is still a mighty Savior. And so you've been praying for such and such a somebody to be saved, and you, you need that still small voice from the Lord that Christ still is powerful to save. Or you might need that still small voice just to remind you that the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills and he can provide every need that you have not to worry. You might need that still small voice that says that the Lord sticks closer than a brother, that the Lord is a faithful friend. You might need that still small voice just to remind you that the love of God is something that nothing of this world is ever going to separate you from. And you're his. You're his child. You belong to him. And the Lord will draw near to you when you draw near to him. So we all have these kinds of needs. I don't know what yours are. I only know what mine are. I know what I think mine are. How about that? But I do know in a general sense the needs of human nature. And we all have our discouragements. And may the Lord help us to be encouraged in faltering faith to meet with the Lord and to listen to his word as he would encourage us to follow him. May the Lord help us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do confess before you our need. We are such a pitiful, weak people. We are so forgetful of your mercies. We're so forgetful of your power. And we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would forgive us for the infirmities of our own flesh and our own weaknesses and our our own often discouragements. And we pray that we would continually be seeking you 
as we know really what's happening is you're seeking us. And may we be faithful to hear that still small voice of your word speaking to us day by day. Give us hearts sensitive to your speaking voice. Help us in this week to come with the different responsibilities and circumstances of life that we face, the the busyness of life, the coming and the going, and uh, even as we were considering this morning the circle of influence that we have and our need to tell others of what you have done for us and what Christ can do for them. We pray for safety for Pastor Kimbrough as he travels tomorrow and flies back home on Tuesday. Pray for traveling mercies. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.